If you would please turn to Second Chronicles 6.18. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servants pray before you, that your eyes may be open and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now this morning, I hope, do hope that you will keep your Bibles open with me there too. Second uh, Chronicles, we are there in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles. Some of you, like, just now found it. <laughs> like, okay, I had to look at the table of contents. I mean, Second Chronicles isn't exactly a place that we're turning every day for our devotional reflection, but here, as we're working our way through the History of Redemption sermon series, we're in week 8 of 16 in this series. It'll take us through the end of the year. We are reading through the Bible uh, with the Bible reading plan that's found at BibleTogether.com and the reflections that can be found there, and we're tracing God's revelation of his purpose, God's purpose to redeem a people to himself. This is God's purpose. It's being revealed from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation, a people for himself out from among a rebellious creation. We've worked our way from creation and the fall, the fall of mankind into sin, through God's early interactions with mankind there in, in judgment and grace in the flood and in the Tower of Babel. We've seen God's call of Abraham. We've seen God's grace being made known through the patriarchs. We've seen God's provision and multiplication of the people in, uh, through Joseph as well as in their time in Egypt. So here they are. They're not even in the land that God has promised to them, and yet they're flourishing and they're multiplying under God's provision until that Pharaoh rose up. And we see God's rescue. And then we see God's giving of a law. And we see God's establishment of a covenant of steadfast love and mercy, of blessings, curses, and redemption through Moses and the Exodus. And we have a glimpse uh, in the entrance of the people into the land. We just glimpsed it briefly of Joshua entering the land going through in conquest. We have a, a short season of judges that we sort of passed over very quickly last week and or two weeks ago in the establishment of a kingdom in that land, a kingdom with the establishment of uh, King Saul and then King David that we looked at last week. So this morning, after all of that, we're heading over to First and Second Chronicles. We are fully into the age of kings. God is not just establishing a people not just giving them an identity, he is making them a kingdom in a particular land. Now, First and Second Chronicles are, are kind of interesting. They're very similar to First and Second Kings. So if you're reading through the whole Bible, reading every verse, chapter and verse, you'll see that you're reading a lot of the same material in First and Second Kings as First and Second Chronicles. Kings is from the perspective of the prophets who warned Israel and Judah prior to their going into captivity. So they tend to, there's a lot of warning that is present 
in the books of Kings. Much of the same material is covered in Chronicles, but it's ordered and arranged and even commented upon from the perspective more of a priestly perspective or a temple perspective, a reestablishing the worship of the people after their return from captivity. So we have sort of have these two perspectives. I've, I've seen it compared to the gospel material, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John covering essentially the same, the period of time, covering much of the same events, but offering by the communication of that events a variety of perspectives and teaching moments for a people. Now, before we consider our passage this morning, I want to again orient our history and timeline in this age of kings. Before we do so, let's spend a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. We thank you for a story that we get to give attention to. Thank you that this story is recorded for us, so that we don't have to guess at the accuracy. We don't have to guess at the truthfulness. We don't have to guess at the value of what we are giving attention to. But by your Spirit's preservation and record, we have the actual history of humanity's redemption by our creator, God. Give us ears to hear this morning. Incline not only our ears, but also our heart to give attention to what is of utmost importance today. Thank you, Lord. We trust you that you would do this in our midst, right here in this room, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's orient ourselves in these kings. We've got Saul, we've got David, we've got Solomon. Two weeks ago, we met Samuel, all right? Samuel came before these three kings. Samuel is the last of the judges of Israel. The judges are not kings. They are people who are appointed by God for a specific task in a season, in a circumstance, to carry the people in from a season of distress into a season of provision. Samuel is the last of those judges and serves as a bit of a bridge to the establishment of the kings and the kingdom. Samuel is a remarkably faithful man. He's, he's nearly unique in the scriptures. There's very little of negative that you can find about Samuel. He's a faithful man. Nevertheless, late in his ministry as a faithful judge, as a faithful leader of the people Late in his ministry, the people begin to call for a king to replace him. Samuel, you're almost done. We're kind of done with these judges things. We need a king. In fact, what we need is a mighty warrior. That's what they're asking for when they're asking for a king. They're asking for a mighty warrior like the neighboring nations who will go before them and fight their battles. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem because the Lord is clear and kind to Samuel. The Lord goes to Samuel and he says to them, the people haven't rejected you, Samuel. I mean, your time's almost done anyway, really. But rather, what they have done is they have rejected the Lord as king. What had the Lord promised to do except for to go before them, to be their warrior, to fight for them, that he would be their father, God, and provider? And now they're asking for a king to do that in his place? It's the Lord who had promised to fight their battles. And so they're not asking to replace Samuel. They're asking to replace God. Now the Lord relents, and he gives the people their request, even as he warns them through Samuel of the oppressive nature of kings. If you have a mighty warrior who goes out to fight battles before you, they're going to come home and have a certain level of entitlement. And that's exactly what happens, where the Lord had called the people to be his beloved children. Note, 
The nature of the relationship that God is establishing with Israel. Israel, his son called out of Egypt to be his beloved children. The kings are going to treat the people not only as subjects, but as slaves. So the people are going to move from children in the kingdom of heaven to slaves of a king who's somewhere in Israel. The Lord anoints Saul, and Saul is the first king. Saul's a head taller than anyone else, and he'll lead the people with great strength. He will perform his duties of warrior king, but he will also reject the word of the Lord, and he will seek to simultaneously enrich himself. That's exactly what he does. So the Lord rejects Saul, and he promises to take the kingdom away from Saul. The kingdom is not for Saul's enrichment. The kingdom is for the worship of the Lord and the establishment of a people in a land. And so the Lord sends Samuel to anoint another young man where Samuel had originally anointed Saul. Now the kingdom is being ripped away from Saul and Samuel anoints David as king. Last week we met David. David's fascinating and unique. There are no rulers of any nation who came before him who are like him. I'm going to say it again. There are no rulers of any nations who came before King David who are like King David. He sets a standard for rulers who follow after him. He will become a model of righteous government for ages to come. King David, those many hundreds of years ago, sets a model that we look to yet to this day. What's unique about David? I already said Saul was a pretty tall dude, pretty strong dude, mighty warrior. We've had lots of mighty warriors before and after Saul, before and after David. What was unique about David was he was humble. That's unique. He was a mighty warrior, yes. He was a powerful ruler. And he did walk at times in the very ways that the Lord had warned against, that that he would treat the people more like his slaves rather than his children. He would do that. But David was, listen, self-consciously flawed. He was self-consciously flawed. More than that, he was aware that he was a sinner. It's one thing to know that you're not perfect. You know, I'm only human. David would maybe rage in his courts. No, no, that's not enough. You see, David knows that he's actually not only not only human, He's also a sinner whose life as a king was lived in view of a holy and merciful God. Probably most shocking, David was willing to receive prophets and priests who would rebuke him and call him out in his sin and call him to repentance. And this is a new thing for kings. This is a whole new manner of being, perhaps even better than saying that David was humble, because that's not enough. That's like sort of an internal character attribute. It might be more accurate to say that David knew that he himself has a king. David is the first king in history to be established and functionally walk in the reality that he has an actual king that he is under. As we said last week, mankind was created to rule within creation as a creature king in the image of his maker. But there is only one creator king, and David actually walked in that, not only in his pursuit of righteousness, but also in his pursuit of repentance, that there is a holy 
and merciful God. That's David. After David, <coughs> David's son Solomon was anointed as king. Under David, the borders of the kingdom had greatly expanded. Okay, Now under the rule of Solomon, the kingdom will experience both great peace and prosperity and great influence among its neighbors and great kingdoms of the land. And this is where we find ourselves today, a, a land that has greatly expanded <coughs> And under King Solomon, David's son, is experiencing great peace, prosperity, and fame. Let's understand the context of our passage. David had greatly desired to build a temple in Jerusalem. And this is where we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. David had, had greatly desired this temple, but the Lord had said that David's business was to tend to the borders of the kingdom, not for the establishment of a temple in Jerusalem. The business of building the temple would fall to David's son, Solomon. It's worth noting that where David was a great warrior king, what's Solomon's name mean? Solomon's name means peace. He is the, a king that will preside over a great peace in the land and the land that surrounds. He'll preside over that peace and prosperity. It's a season in which, in the midst of that peace, God will establish his temple I think there's so many things that we could already look at, but just notice this. God's writing the timeline. Like David had a plan, but because God is king, he submits to a timeline that God is working out. No, David, it's going to be your son who does it, and he's going to do it in a season of peace, and that's when I'll establish my temple. Solomon, in 2 Chronicles 6 now, is dedicating the temple with an extended prayer before the Lord. Verse 14 of our passage today. <clears throat> Verse 14, Solomon said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. This is Solomon speaking to the covenant God for whom he has constructed this Temple. The title of the message comes from the first words of our passage this morning. As Solomon prays, he comes to our passage this morning, verse 18. Near the beginning of Solomon's prayers, he asks Solomon's prayer, he asks this fascinating question. But will, verse 18, God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Now there's a chin scratcher, right? <laughs> Let's think about that. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Who's asking this question in prayer to the God that he hopes would dwell with man on earth? Well, it's the guy who just built a temple where he hopes that God would, you know, dwell with man on earth. And he's asking this question right in the middle of a dedication of that temple. For the remainder of our time together, we're going to answer this question three ways. And the first answer to the question is actually, it's sort of in the question. It's a ridiculous question, and the answer is so obviously no. No, God will not indeed dwell with man on earth. That's ridiculous to even suggest. It's the question itself, even in prayer of the dedication of a temple, sort of presumes the answer 
I go, well, of course not. Of course not. Solomon answers his own question. Earlier, when Solomon was making preparations to build the temple, he asks in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, be a good little verse to sort of put in the reference. It may even be in the reference in your, in your study Bibles or whatever. In 2 Chronicles 2, verse 6, it says, but who is able to build him a house? Says the guy who's going to build him a house. Who is able to build him a house? Since, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Friends, that, that is not a house. That's simply a place of offering and worship. Solomon is basically admitting this. Solomon knows that he can build a building. He can build a temple. But that temple is a place for worship. He cannot build a house. And he knows it. How can man build a house for God? Now, we saw in Genesis chapter 1, Exactly the opposite of that happened, right? We say God built a house for man and a whole garden fruitful for them to enjoy. But how does man say, man, God, thanks for, you know, this really nice place. I think I'll make you something too. Like the question is foolish to even ask. A man can gather to a specific holy place, but God is too great to be restricted to one place. Not even heaven itself is expansive enough to be the dwelling place of God. I'm going to offer a quote. Author a quote from Arthur Pink, or A.W. Pink, you may know him as. In the beginning, God. Like in the beginning, like forever and all of eternity. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven, where his glory is now particularly manifest. There was no earth, to engage his attention. There were no angels to sing his praises. There was no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting, during a past eternity. And even that word, right? I don't work in those categories. Right? In a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. The Lord was not waiting for an eternity for some king in Jerusalem to finally build himself, uh, build him a house to settle down in. In the beginning, God, sufficient, perfect, always. And Solomon knows it even as he builds that very house. Psalm 113. Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? He's seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth. This opening to Solomon's prayer of dedication is a strong and necessary warning against idolatry. I think it's one of the reasons why Solomon prays like this. He's not preaching a sermon. He's praying a prayer. 
And he's praying a prayer that begins with a reality, a ridiculous question to skew himself and the people away from a ridiculous possibility of idolatry. Solomon, in the construction of the temple, has not carved an idol for God. That's so important. If God is to dwell in this place, it will be only because God has come down. If God would dwell in the temple, God would dwell in the midst of the people, if he would make this his house, it will be because God has come down. God is not wandering in a wilderness looking for a home. He is above the highest heaven, and the temple cannot contain him. So let's pause for a moment. Let me ask you this. Do you have a transcendent view of God? Do you carry with you the sort of thing that that in the beginning of a passionate, a, a beautiful, a merciful, a close, intimate prayer, like what Solomon continues with, do you have a conception of a God in which you could say, who will Will God dwell with us? You are awesome. The highest heaven cannot contain you. This is not how we conceive of God in so much of contemporary Christianity. It's not our disposition. I think it is very much because we have elevated ourselves greatly. And in elevating ourselves greatly, we still aren't high enough, so we need to bring God down. But we don't bring God down. If he would dwell with us, it's only because he has drawn near. So much of what passes as Christian worship highlights God's nearness. And you'll see, we'll come to that, but stay with me. We'll see the great grace and truth of God's nearness, but when Solomon prays to dedicate this great symbol of God's nearness, the temple, he is sure to begin by remembering not God's nearness, but by remembering God's transcendence. The contrast to God's nearness. Well, what is different? If he's not near like that, what is he? Afar, right? No, no. The, the, the contrast to God's nearness is not his farness. It's actually his vastness. It's, it's not that the Lord is far off in a distant heaven. It's that even the greatest and most vast reaches of all of creation do not constrain or withhold him. That's what's ridiculous about the question, will God dwell with man? He, how could he be contained in such a small place as to dwell with us in a particular location alone? The Lord is not far off. The Lord is near. But in the vastness of his glory, he is not restrained. Not even Solomon, the builder of that great temple, thought to restrain the vastness of God. Solomon is the greatest king in all of history, period. The greatest king in all of history. His wisdom and wealth seemed boundless. If you want to use the word vast of a human being, use the name Solomon. His wisdom, wealth, but here, Solomon, the vast king, is saying, declaring not his greatness, but the greatness of the Lord. 
when we have God on one side of the scale, just imagine for me, visualize this, God, this great scale and balance, and somehow we manage to contain God all on this side of the scale. Just work with me for a second. And then if we put anything and everything, even Solomon in all of his splendor on the other side of, his, of this scale, God's greatness, his majesty, and his glory do not find a balance. Anything and everything, God is great. Well, let's say, now we've got the scale. Let's go over here and let's put anything and everything on that side of scale with God. Surely then the greatness will be increased. No, God alone is great. God alone is majestic. God alone is glorious. You can add anything and everything to God's side of the scale and the greatness is not increased. His glory is all the glory. His weight is the only weight and all other gravity, all other weight, all other glory finds its gravity in him. That's what Solomon's saying. He built a great temple. That is not great. He built a majestic and a glorious temple that is neither majestic nor glorious, but God fill it with his majesty and his glory. Our question again, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Solomon begins his prayer with a caution against idolatry. The answer, a strong no. But let's keep reading just in case there's anything else we can learn. Verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and his plea. O Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house. He's calling on the nearness of God to this place. And so I would, I know I put an exclamation point on it. I don't think it should be quite as big of an exclamation point as the first one, but it's true. The answer to the question is actually yes. Yes, God will make his dwelling place with man. Yes, the Lord is transcendent, but will he hear the prayer of his people who gather to worship, sacrifice, and make offering in this place? And the answer is yes. Yes, he will. Solomon has admitted that the temple that he built cannot contain the vastness in any sense of restraining God to this place, but this place can and will become a place where God will actually meet with his people. Will God dwell with men? Yes. Like in Jerusalem, at that temple, right there, Worship, glory, majesty, right there. Which takes me back to Psalm 113. We went to Psalm 113 because I did a little search on my Bible app. And I'm like, show me verses that say things about how great God is. Right? And boom, 113. There it is. God is great. Who's like him? Right? Highest heaven and stuff. And if you keep reading 113, here's what you find. Verses 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap 
to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The Lord is great. He is seated on high and looks far down, and yet in this very same psalm, he raises the poor and he blesses the barren. Is God too great, too vast to be contained? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Is God so great that he does not stoop low to draw near to even the poor, even the barren, Again, I'll point to this reality. The the contrast to the idea that God cannot be contained in a temple is not that he is far off. The contrast is that he is so vast that he is great and near. I start to feel it a little bit. Like the first part's like, well, we should sing a song about the greatness of our God. And now we're like, God is kind. God is great and merciful and filled with steadfast love. I feel like I, I don't know if I could sing, but I could pray. And that's exactly where Solomon goes. The reality is not that the Lord is far, but that he is vast. He's great and majestic, vast and transcendent. And that vast and great and majestic and transcendent God has made himself near, even to the most brokenhearted. This is how Solomon, who has just pointed to the uncontainable nature of God, also points to the reality that the Lord has drawn near to hear the prayer of all who call to him. And he presses the point home in a series of requests. We didn't read them this morning. If you're following along with the Bible reading plan, you read it there. A series of requests unfold. I found Verses 24 through 25, one of the most interesting series of requests. Here's what it says. Verse 24, if your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. They're not just defeated, they're defeated because they're sinners. And if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Oh, So they were defeated not just because of their sin, but because the Lord afflicted them in their sin with this defeat. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given. I'm sorry, I skipped. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. It says it again, if you turn over just a little bit further. Verse 36, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. That's so important. Solomon, in the dedication of the temple, knows something. He knows what that, that fictional man or woman at the giving of the covenant just a few weeks ago we considered also knew. There's no way we keep this thing. There's just no way that we get the blessings and not the curses. And you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. When the exile happens, because we're not just going to get blessings, but we're going to get curses. Where, where did Solomon get the idea that perhaps if the people are unfaithful, they would be defeated by their enemies and carried into a foreign land? Have we heard anything like that before? That's Deuteronomy 30. In our reading, the people have already shown themselves to be greatly disobedient many times. 
as a people as a whole and people as individuals. And Solomon knows that if, if God holds out blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience, surely there will come a day in which the curse falls upon a people of a great kingdom, even his own, who have a temple in the midst of their land where God has made his presence known. Curse is coming. Solomon knows it. But Solomon also knows the third point of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 30, just read it very quickly. When, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, which I've, and call, you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord has given, the, your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice in all that he's commanded to you with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He'll gather you from all the peoples where the Lord, your God, has scattered you. Here's what Solomon is praying in the dedication of the temple. It's a prayer that remembers and takes hold of all of the promises of God. Solomon's prayer is a rehearsal of the story of redemption even before so much of that story has taken place. This is the rehearsal of the story. It's the blessings, curses, and redemption story. It's, it's a story of God's gracious blessing. Isn't that it's a description of creation? Doesn't the story begin with God's gracious blessing? And it's a story of persistent rebellion of mankind, from Adam and Eve to this people, to every people, to you and to me. It's a story of the righteous judgment of God. Don't skip that. If you're going to go to blessings, you can't skip curses. The righteous judgment of God on sinners like, you know, Adam and Israel and you and me. And a merciful call to repentance. And the gracious provision of forgiveness and restoration. It's blessing, yes. It's curse, yes. But the covenant is also redemption. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Solomon finishes his prayer in chapter six. And if you go over to chapter seven, how does it begin? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory, that great weight on this side of all things, that only true weight and glory filled the temple. You can't contain him. He is vast. And that glory has made himself near. The Lord, whose glory is higher than the highest heavens, has made himself known in this singular, particular place, according to the covenant of his grace. The Lord is great. The Lord has promised to draw near, even in the promises of his nearness. Don't neglect that his glory is in the temple and manifest behind a curtained room. God has drawn near, but what has he drawn near? The greatness of his glory, right? And don't miss what, I mean, it's beautiful that God has drawn near. But note what is near. God. Don't forget it. He's made his glory known behind a curtained room in which the great high priest could only approach once a year on the day of atonement. There it is. The Lord has drawn near. But mankind may only approach the most holy place of this temple 
through a great high priest and through the blood of atonement. Will God, remember the question, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? He will not be contained, know that, but because of the vastness of both his glory and his grace, he will draw near. But the story of redemption isn't complete until we see that the answer is more than yes. The answer is more than yes. The answer is yes, indeed. And you're like, oh, thank you, pastor. That was super helpful. I'll just write that down real quick. It's yes, indeed, and you'll see it very quickly. Listen to John 1.14. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen eyeballs have received light reflecting in a room and in a field and along the way and seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Will God dwell among his people? Yes, indeed he will. The the word dwelt in that passage, some of you may know, is the same as though he had said that the word had tabernacled among you. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus. He made his tent with us. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God with mankind. Don't miss what I just said. That is not just a comforting thought. That is a theological category of immense comfort for the church. Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God with man. It's not merely that the Lord has allowed a king, a priest, a nation to establish a temple in the midst of the people. It's that the Lord himself has drawn near. The very image of the invisible God has made himself known, and we have seen his glory, and we have a record of his dwelling with us and a promise that we'll see him again. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything in our passage today. What is first, Second Chronicles about? It's about the temple, Jesus Christ. We've seen his glory. Jesus of whom John speaks, in the beginning was the word, and the words was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the dwelling place of God among men. Jesus viewed himself in this way. He viewed himself as the replacement for the temple. He is the true and lasting temple. Here's what he says in John 2.19. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is the risen, enduring temple and foundation that will not be shaken. Jesus is the holy place. Jesus is the vast, this side of the scales, glory of God brought near to dwell with mankind. Jesus is the true and greater temple. Jesus is the great high priest by which we may approach God. The blood of Jesus makes atonement so that we may be cleansed and made righteous before the holy God. And when we enter the holy places, we find Jesus sitting on the throne, dwelling in heaven, 
among a people. I've thought about this for decades now. Colossians chapter 3. It's life-changing. I know it changed mine. Colossians chapter 3. Where does the Scriptures say Jesus is? Jesus is the dwelling place of God with man. He is the temple. Where is he? Well, Colossians chapter 3 actually says that he's at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. We'll read it in just a second. I invite you to turn there if you'd like. But I thought the good news of this whole thing was that the dwelling place of God was with man. But the passage says that that Jesus is with God. Who is God? At the right hand of God. And you're like, I'm not seeing the good news yet. I mean, it's neat. But I thought, where does Colossians say the redeemed are? Listen to Colossians chapter 3. If then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. So seek God, who's way up there, seated at the right hand of God. I'm still not comforted. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I'm like, man, I got things on earth assaulting me at every corner and every morning and every evening. And you're telling me to just like get my brain up there somehow. For you have died dude down there dealing with all the things of the earth. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Where am I? My life, man, the part of me that matters, dwells with God in Christ. The part of me that believes by faith I've been united with Christ in his death, so that man died. And I've been united with Christ in his resurrection, so I have life. Man, that by faith I dwell with Christ. Well, how are we supposed to live in this earth with all the world assaulting us from every direction, morning, afternoon, and evening? We're supposed to live by faith. We're supposed to live not just like putting our brain theologically in heaven, but God, I believe that I'm all caught up in you. That's why the the Apostle Paul is able to say, to live is Christ, to die, gain. Like I don't have to live in this weird world that we live in now where, yeah, I'm I'm like, I'm there, I'm here, I'm there, I'm here. No, gain, it's finally complete and it all makes sense. Jesus is with us. And it's even more than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is with us. Do, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do note the Greek there is plural. We don't really have a, 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 an English plural you. Well, we do. It's called y'all, right? Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? The church is where God has made his presence known. His spirit, you want to seek God? Seek the things of God. Gather with the people of God. Be together with Christ together. 
when Solomon dedicated the temple, it's true that God is both too great to be contained and that God made his glory known among a people in a temple. Both of those things are true. And so to look to the temple and to the sacrifice at the temple was to worship in the presence of the holy God. It was true. What God promised would happen there really did happen, and yet it's not the end of the redemption story. The temple in Jerusalem is not the locus of the gathering. Alistair Begg goes so far. It's a strong statement, but I encourage you, hear it. A pilgrimage to the Holy Land is a misnomer. The only true biblical pilgrimage to the Holy Land is to Jesus. He is that land. He is that temple. He is that destination. The Holy Land is the presence of Christ. Just like the bush wasn't holy, the flame in the bush is what made some bush holy. Made the land in which he stood holy. But you can feel the tension in that, can't you? The word says that I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and yet the word says that the spirit of Christ is here with me. I understand God being in places. I can understand him being in two places at once, but I have a hard time envisioning me being in two places at once. I struggle with that one. But what scripture is expressing is the already not yet reality of this present age, an age in which we are by faith really actually with God. I am positionally seated in Christ. My life is caught up in him and kept in him, and yet I'm waiting with the spirit present as a good deposit yet to be brought to the final and eternal resting place with God. And that's why we began our service with, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This isn't the first time that we've turned to this passage, actually. Not just this morning, but in our time in the history of redemption. And it's real clear why. This is a series on the history of redemption. And that passage, Revelation 21, is the beautiful ending and resolution of the story. Yes, I gave the end away. But that's the, that's the whole nature of our faith to be inclined to that end, to grab the reality, the, the actual reality of that end by faith and pull it into this moment so that I might be strengthened in Christ, that his spirit would dwell with me by faith. And so I would ask you in closing, do you approach the Lord Jesus like the worshiper approaches the temple? It's interesting that in this passage, it says a number of times in Second Chronicles chapter 6 that when they turn toward the temple and pray in that direction, I'm kind of like, well, where do you pray today? Like, which direction? Like, you know, like when I pray, I'm facing that way and y'all are facing this way. One of us got it wrong or what? Well, where do we turn? We turn toward Christ. And that's not some sort of spiritualism. That's what's real, that the temple was spiritualism. The temple was a type pointing to the reality. We turn to Christ by faith. It is why at the end of all of our, all of our prayer, we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
We're turning to you, Jesus, by faith. And all of what we've said, in the name of Jesus Christ, pause. So be it. Amen. I pray this morning that this would be so for you. That every person here would hear the call to faith, to turn to Christ, that, that you would come to Christ through his sacrifice, that's the only way, and that you would know your God. Everyone, whether that is your testimony of faith or is that's the testimony that you need to bear this morning, that you would turn by faith and dwell with your God until one of these days, somebody's gonna say, that, there's that loud voice, he's over there, and we all literally turn. And we see him face to face. Heavenly Father, things that are too high for us. We're talking about God with the vastness of glory and majesty. And, 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 and a mercy and grace unknown to us but through you. Lord, I pray today that we would be humbled and submit to your grace. That we would receive your grace by faith that we would say that Jesus is God with us. I believe it by faith. I take hold of what is true, the reality of Emmanuel. And Lord, that that reality would bleed its way into our moments and our days. Spirit, be this good deposit. Remind us of the truth and the life that we have in Christ. Bless us and keep us there, we pray. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your saints, equip us, build us up. And Lord, if there is one who is lost this morning, I pray that there would be a conviction of sin and a cry out to you. Lord, I believe, I believe, and so be saved. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.